The next reading of Holy Scripture comes from Mark chapter 15, verses 16 to 47. 16 to 47. If you'll stand for the reading of God's Word. Mark 15, beginning at verse 16. This is God's word. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, the king of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him, To one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene 
and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and mercy may it be preached for you. You may be seated. And as we come to consider this portion of God's word, let us pray for his help. Almighty God, we come to what in many ways feels as if it may be some of the more sacred moments recorded in your holy word. And we ask that as we consider these things about the death of our Lord, that you might help us not to count ourselves too familiar with these events, but that we might reflect anew on how important they are for our lives, for how you've brought your kingdom and for understanding the immense love that you have for us. Overcome the deficiencies of the preacher. They are many, and they are real, and they are significant. Would you bless the reading and the preaching of your holy words, bring forth fruit in our hearts to love you more, to serve you better. We ask it all in the wonderful name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. The quarterback sneak... Is a play, this is the first ever football illustration I've used. Um, the, but the quarterback sneak is a play in, in football where the quarterback receives the ball and immediately presses forward without passing it to anybody else. And the advantage of, of such a, a blunt tactic is that it's the most likely play to make quick progress down the field. And so it's especially useful if the team needs to get just to gain just a little bit of distance to secure the next play. But the quarterback sneak has its liabilities in that it leaves the quarterback, the key player, highly exposed with the possibility of getting hit, possibly injured. It's a direct sort of strategy that is on the, new, on the nose about accomplishing its goal, but also means that this central figure, this key player, can take the damage. In Mark 15, 
16 to 47, we find how Christ dives headlong into what, from the enemy's perspective at least, turns out to be a surprise attack on that. From the human perspective, it seems like victory can't be won by dying. If you take the ultimate hit, how can you come out the champion? From the Christian viewpoint, we have long seen it coming that Christ was going to the cross as the way to bring his kingdom to bear in its fullest capacity. But but from the earthly viewpoint, it seemed like Jesus had entirely lost. And Jesus comes through with the ultimate quarterback sneak. To overcome death, he dives headlong into the defensive line of death itself. And in the process, he absorbs the full impact of death as he goes to his grave. But also, in the process, he reaches the end zone to defeat death itself. It doesn't seem like the obvious way to win. But Christ's kingdom has upended expectations all along the way. And we find that his enthronement comes through his suffering, his exaltation through death and his victory through defeat. Our Savior brings salvation by enduring what should be our suffering, thereby freeing us from its curse. Mark's gospel is about who Jesus is and what his kingdom is like. And as we near the end of this account of Christ's earthly ministry, we learn in a climactic way that Jesus is God the Son, come to remove God's curse upon, uh, for sin from upon his people. And we see that his kingdom is one about spiritual realities rather than the political upper hand. We see that Christ continues to surprise us by bringing his kingdom blessings in the least expected ways. And this passage before us challenges us in our discipleship to rethink what victory and success means. It also comforts us by reminding us of all that Christ endured on our behalf. And so our main point today is that Christ was first enthroned upon a cross. Christ was first enthroned upon a cross. And our three points are forged, foretold, and forsaken. First, let's think about forged. We have to remember from last time in Mark's Gospel that the charge of which Jesus has been convicted and for which he is now being executed is simply that he is the King of the Jews. And that sets the stage for everything that we have to consider in the passage before us. As we saw last time when Pilate brought the question to Christ, Are you 
the king of the Jews, Jesus in some way accepted the charge by saying, you have said so. And two layers were at work in that. Although Pilate assumed and and worked with an understanding of this charge uh, as if it was political, Jesus leaned upon a theological meaning that he was the Messiah, is the Messiah, who came to save his people. And so his true kingship was veiled under the veneer of what everyone assumed kingship had to mean. And every aspect of our text is colored by those two layers. On the one side, Christ is humiliated in political terms. On the other side, the very people who mistreat our Lord fail to realize that they are leading him to his most fundamental victory as king. And that stands out even at the beginning of this passage. In the palace, the place of ruling, the guards robed Jesus in a purple cloak. Purple was the color of royalty because it was, it was expensive to make and so expensive to buy. And so they robe him in the color of royalty. And the soldiers meant to mock Jesus by deriding his claim to kingship by giving him this robe. All the while, the foundations of the kingdom of God were being laid in the suffering of the Savior. They twisted together a crown of thorns, thinking that the pain that the thorns caused made their point that Jesus' kingship must be a sham, since no king would reign in this way. And yet, in reality, the suffering of this crown was truly advancing his kingdom as he was pouring out his life to gather citizens into the kingdom of heaven through the forgiveness of sin. In every way, this passage shows that the kingdom of God is not what the world thinks, but brings salvation through the humility of God the Son. And as the soldiers kneel to give homage in mockery, they don't realize that they are truly enthroning the king of the world upon his very weapon that he will use to destroy the powers of this age. When Pilate labeled Christ as the king of the Jews, refusing to change the sign above Jesus, he was declaring the truth, even if it was by accident on his part. As Christ was enthroned upon the cross, he was dealing the death blow to death itself. His death was the weapon that was blowing apart the kingdoms and powers of this age. Despite what the Romans and the Jews thought that they were doing, they were in reality marching forward Christ's kingdom as they brought to fulfillment 
all that would ensure salvation for those who belong to Jesus Christ by faith. Christ's kingdom was forged by a victory that looked like defeat. And that brings us to our second point, foretold. The unexpected dynamic of victory through perceived defeat isn't accidental, is not accidental. There's a a real sense in which this, this whole section of Mark's gospel and Psalm 22 stand in the closest of relationship to one another. And, and given the, the Spirit's inspiration of the Old Testament authors, uh, Psalm 22 is almost like an advanced commentary on the crucifixion events. Although I realize that this is in some ways a, a handful of details to, to throw at you. I, I think it would be useful for us to spotlight these connections by running through what's going on here in order. So in, in Mark fifteen twenty four, so verse 24, the soldiers divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Psalm twenty two eighteen. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. In Mark fifteen twenty nine to thirty two, the the wagging their heads while taunting Jesus so extensively fulfills Psalm twenty two seven to eight. All who see me mock me; they make mouths at me; they wag their heads. He trusts. And the Lord let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Does that not correspond to how they call for Jesus to come down from the cross if he is truly the Lord's appointed one? In Mark fifteen thirty four, Jesus directly quoted Psalm twenty two one My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In verse 36, the offer of sour wine seems to refer to uh, Psalm 69.21, admittedly another psalm, but, but another one of lament from a king in distress as people, his own people, act against him, saying, they give me poison for food, and for my thirst they give me sour wine to drink. What significance should we see in this tight connection between Mark 15 and, and Psalm 22. It shows us the real relationship between Christ's suffering and the ascendancy of his kingdom. Psalm 22, admittedly, yes, is is about a king's suffering. And yet, Psalm 22 also has God in view as enthroned on the praises of Israel and how kingship belongs to the Lord. And so this royal reality is at work even as 
this psalmist greatly suffers feeling abandoned by God. And Psalm 22 takes a radical change of direction towards the end. Even as the psalmist seems to have lost all hope in one way, he also knows that all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, because kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Apart from its fulfillment in Mark 15, in the things that happen in Mark 15, we may not be able to... I don't think we could understand how Psalm 22 makes sense. That the king of God's people would be in such great turmoil, even abandoned, and yet God is reigning in such a profound, amazing way. But we can see that David recorded the feeling of being abandoned by God pointing forward to how Christ would truly bear God's curse for our sin. But in God, the Son being forsaken upon the cross by the Father, God's kingship exploded to the ends of the earth, to all nations, making people from every tribe, tongue, and nation able to worship the Lord in truth because the forgiveness of sin was accomplished in the Son's suffering. Life then erupted from death, even as God had foretold in the Old Covenant Scripture. That brings us to our final point. Forsaken. Forsaken. And I want to pull two applications from what we've considered so far. Um, first, uh, concerning how we navigate the world, and second, about what Christ's death has accomplished for us. So first, how, how does this help us think about our life of discipleship? I think as Christians we have to recognize that victory does not always look like success in worldly terms. Christ's greatest victory was won with all the appearances of defeat. How does that help us? I mean, in the Christian life, we might often feel ragged and bruised. We might feel like a million miles stands between us and any levels of godliness. But God is at work in us. We might feel like we are pushing with 
all of our might for our lives to have any sort of real fruit in it. But we have to remember that in Matthew 25, when everyone appears before the last judgment, the true believers are the ones who need Jesus to explain to them that they accomplished anything of spiritual value. It might feel like we are losing. But it felt like Christ was losing too. Appearances can be greatly deceiving. Hence, why we prioritize supporting one another in prayer and rallying around the means of grace in repentance and faith. We ought not to despair and think that think that God has given up on us. Even for the church, holistically speaking, beyond ourselves, we should not lose hope if the culture around us is not impressed with what the church is. The culture was not impressed with our Savior or the sort of kingdom that he was building then. In the midst of rejection, though, Christ was establishing an everlasting kingdom. If we don't have the cultural approval that we want, God is still building the exact sort of kingdom with the exact sort of victories that have everlasting worth. And so, we need not despair despite appearances. Second, second application. Christ absorbed God's curse for sin as the true and ultimate sacrifice for sin. We cannot forget how Christ's death took place in such close connection to the Passover, the day that the lambs were offered at the temple. At the very first Passover, the people were instructed to kill a lamb and spread its blood on the doorpost to protect them from the the coming tenth plague, right? The death of the firstborn. The blood of the lamb shielded them from death. Do you remember what the ninth plague was? Just before that tenth curse of death, shielded by the Lamb's blood, just before that, in Exodus 10, 21 to 29, darkness fell upon the whole land. And as Jesus was about to declare his own abandonment as the final and ultimate Lamb who would truly forgive sin, There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And this darkness underscored the connection of Christ's death to the Passover sacrifice, reminding us of what was happening in the first Passover and telling us that what was happening in the first one was really about this one. Just as darkness preceded the first exodus, 
when the blood of sacrificed lambs protected Israel from death, darkness preceded the death of the Lamb who saves us from death itself. Now we have the new and greatest exodus as King Jesus led all of his people out of slavery to death and sin by dying in our place. As Christ breathed his last, the curtain of the temple, which was a marker that separated God's presence from easy access. You couldn't get through it. And as Christ breathed his last, this curtain, the dividing wall, was torn from top to bottom. As Jesus died, God himself reached down from heaven and grabbed the top of the barrier between us and him and ripped it in two. The quarterback sneak is often expected where a short gain of distance is needed. Jesus had been rolling out his kingdom in miracles and in preaching, but the final distance he had to achieve was the ultimate goal. And the Old Testament made it very expected, even if no one in the moment saw the tactic coming. As he climbed the cross, Jesus put himself fully in harm's way, absorbing the full force of death on our account. But achieved the final victory needed to ensure that his reign would last forever and be founded upon grace as he was forsaken for our sake bringing us into his kingdom for salvation. Let's pray. Father God, it is hard to imagine when we really take account of what your son endured for us. Why you would have him do so for us. And how deep the Father's love for us must be. Almighty God, would you remind us what a powerful truth this is that we are redeemed in the blood of the Lord Jesus? And that as many things may be swirling around us in this world, Throughout this life, you have won ultimate victory in Christ Jesus, our Savior. And so, would you encourage us that as we might feel like we are losing in the Christian life or within the world in which we live, things are not always as they appear. 
and that you, the King of glory, are marching forward. And you come to join your people that you might lift up our heads. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.